Welcome to a talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 173. As I look back, the episode I called Seeing Spot Run was released October 6th of 2015. And it's a little bit hard for me to believe that that's four and a half years ago, almost, as I'm recording this late in March of 2020. At the time of this recording, I've just received official confirmation of something I knew to expect and have known to expect for weeks that a river cruise my wife and I were planning to take, uh, flying to Switzerland, going up the Rhine, meeting friends in Amsterdam, that has now been officially canceled. It has been unofficially canceled for quite some time by novel coronavirus COVID-19. But it's official as of now that even if we were foolish enough to try to pursue this trip, the boat is simply not going to leave the dock. And One of the things that I had planned for this year with Inappropriate Conversations, part of my strategy, in fact, was to put together a long series of shows. I'm going through a novella that I wrote many years ago called Some Assembly Required and kind of issuing chapter by chapter so that it can stretch out all the way through to the end of the month of May so that when I was gone on that long vacation, I would have scheduled Inappropriate Conversations episodes that would be coming out while we were off on the trip. I'm still going to stick to that plan, that uh, at the time that this is being released, I'm sort of halfway through the eight-chapter novella with previously issued Inappropriate Conversations podcasts, interlacing them with talkback episodes. We did a couple talkbacks to walk the earth in the early chapters, and now I've hit the point with talkbacks where I'm ready to look at Inappropriate Conversations from a thematic perspective, sharing older episodes of the show and doing so where two or three or even five or six shows in a row have a common theme. For the month of June, for example, that month I believe will be all talkback episodes looking at pride and uh, LGBTQ issues from various angles. But for, for now, I want to look at guns, gun control, gun usage, the impact of guns and gun violence on people, starting off with this surrealist take on the question of gun usage that I call Seeing Spot Run. It was recorded in the aftermath of a mass shooting at a Northwestern college. But to be honest with you, as I note in the early part of the show, this could have been released any time. It's hard to imagine a point in time where you couldn't be recording in the relatively recent aftermath of a mass shooting. In fact, with this... uh, Generally speaking, broad nationwide shelter-in-place social distancing approach that we've been using to deal with this brand new strain of a, of a type of a virus, we might actually be in a place where gun violence, or at least mass shootings, are a little bit lower than they have been according to the trend going back for more than a decade. Part of that is because it's hard to do a mass shooting when you don't find very many situations where there's a lot of people congregated together. You don't have a a vibrant bar scene right now in Dayton, Ohio. You don't have huge country music festivals in Las Vegas. Things are kind of shut down. Not everywhere, of course. But generally speaking, things are sort of shut down. Still, I'd planned from the very beginning of the year to find a spot right in the middle of the uh, novella, Some Assembly Required, to do a couple of talkback episodes from the perspective of guns. I'm a radical moderate. So my view on guns are unlikely to fit squarely into anybody's, you know, niche. But I also don't have anywhere near as strong of feelings as you might think I would have for somebody who's got a little bit of personal experience on the other side of 
of an armed robbery. That'll be the next talkback, looking at it from a personal perspective. This one is looking at it somewhat more analytically, but analytically through what is unmistakably a dreamlike filter. Seeing Spot Run, Inappropriate Conversations, number 173. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about seeing Spot Run. It's the name I'm giving to a look at gun usage. Not gun control, mind you, but gun usage. Before introducing the topic, which is centered around a dream that I had just within the past week, and in fact the very night after hearing about the shootings at Umqua Community College in Oregon. But before I get there, I want to make references to a few previous inappropriate conversations, which might provide a little bit of helpful background. I'm not going to do them in the order of relevance, but more in the order of appearance. In the very first year of the show, uh, episode 43, The Content of Their Character, Probably the first time I took a look at gun violence and gun control. I started off that episode, and I'm going off memory here, but as I recall, I started off that looking at the assassination attempt of Gabriel Giffords and the aftermath of that, particularly comments that were made by Sarah Palin, and used the opportunity to take a look back at things that I wrote, uh, didn't publish, but wrote, shortly after the Columbine High School massacre, and made some comparisons there, and obviously the comparisons work just as well here. I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time focusing on what happened in Oregon, and I won't be surprised if I don't refer to the school or even the state again, because I feel like I can give my thoughts on this matter more legs, so to speak, if I don't. Because these kinds of shootings, whether at a college or a high school or even elementary school, are becoming so common that I could be speaking these same words again in just a couple of months, And uh, while tragic, it means that it's probably best for me not to be too terribly specific about what inspired the dream that is going to lead to this particular Inappropriate Conversations episode. I don't speak with this dispassionately, though. I have been on the other side of a gun. I have had a a gun just a couple of feet from my face uh, as the victim of an armed robbery, and I shared that in Inappropriate Conversations 113, Raised on Robbery. And if I recall correctly, I was looking backward uh, early in the year 2013 to events that had happened just the year before, the end of the year before, in uh, in the elementary school in the American Northeast, and talked a little bit about responding to the notion that, well, if that uh, uh, teacher had just been armed, instead of having to hide the children, she could have gunned down the shooter and saved even more lives. And I kind of recounted my first experience staring down the barrel of a gun and some things I learned about myself. And one of the interesting things that I'll kind of refer back to that a little bit, just to say that most of the time in in situations, and I can cite two or three off the top of my head, where a brave person has stepped up and intervened in an active shooter situation, the uh, 
the Americans on the train in Paris just this year in 2015 is one example. The person who intervened and stopped what could have been much greater loss of life back in the Gabriel Gifford situation in, in Arizona these cases tend to have a personal intervention. Uh, you may have been armed with weapons, but you still stopped the situation not by trying to you know, be the better gun person uh, in a gun fight, but simply by closing the gap of distance as physically as possible and as closely as possible, essentially using more of an American football technique than a glamorized Hollywood shootout kind of a technique. And uh, to me, that's a better example of what would be more effective in these situations. That was my experience in Inappropriate Conversations 113. But I want to start really with looking back at this dream that I had, and it's what inspired me to call this Seeing Spot Run. Because in Inappropriate Conversations 132, also in the year 2013, November of that year, I put out an episode about animal companionship. And if I didn't say it then, I'll say it now. that I feel like as a father, I've done a better job with my kids because we had pets first, I had a perspective, right or wrong, that I wasn't necessarily had. I didn't necessarily have the perfect temperament for what we might call the distinction between being a father and being a dad, or being a da- or being daddy, right? And so, having animals to raise first really helped me understand that sense of responsibility and also sort of that sense of companionship that comes from raising uh, another creature with whom you've got a long-standing commitment. I make jokes from time to time that I've got a special relationship with my daughter, the oldest of my two kids, but I also had a special relationship with my dogger, my female dog. And there's been two dogs really in my life that I've had a really kind of close relationship with. One is the current dog that I think was the leading character in this dream. Although when you're talking about dreams, it's almost always a composite figure. Even if you say, well, hey, I had a dream the other night about this person in high school. Eh, the truth is it's probably multiple people in high school, pieces, parts, a mismatch, a, mi- a mix-up, if you will. And in this case, I took a look at uh, this dog and just said, well, that must be my current dog. I'm, I'm going to call her Spot, even though it's not her name, any more than I would probably use the name of my daughter if I was going to tell a different story of, of a different experience or even a different dream. But my current dog is the second of two. The first one was a Cocker Spaniel, all black, that was the dog that we brought home the first Christmas of our marriage. And we were still planning on giving ourselves two or three years before we we had kids and brought kids into our family relationship. And there's a similarity between that dog and this one, and that both of them are black and sort of knee-high. But in this dream that I had, and again, it was the night after this latest campus shooting, this time in Oregon, in the year 2015, I had this dream that I was uh, opening up my door. Somebody had rung the doorbell or there was a delivery or maybe there was a package or something. And and again, like all uh, dreams, in addition to it being uh, a composite dog and other composite people where it's not really the exact place, this also wasn't my exact home either. But I belonged there. It was the house that I was living in in the dream. And when I opened up the door, my dog, who normally isn't one of those take-off-and-chase-people kind of dogs, did just that. And before I could even identify whether there was somebody at the door or a package waiting for me on the front porch, my dog had taken off. And at first I wasn't terribly concerned because she was taking off in the general direction of somebody, uh, you know, 50 yards off in the distance who was walking a dog. And so I thought, well, my dog is going to see this other person walking her dog. 
But then all of a sudden, that person didn't have a dog. And my, my dog, Spot, was barking. And barking kind of angrily and confrontationally. And I, I've had a pet before who crossed the line and became uh, a problem in terms of a disciplinarian issue. And I was worried that all of a sudden, this very sweet dog that we own today was going to be uh, was going to be a problem for her. Like, she might attack this woman. So I scrambled. I think I needed to maybe get my keys or put on shoes or something. I, I was scrambling to to chase after my dog and intervene, either to apologize for my dog's behavior when I did catch up to the woman, or if nothing else, just to bring my dog back into the home was my goal. But before I could get there, she had pulled out a leash. And again, when I originally saw her, I thought she might've had a dog. She pulled out a leash, attached it to the collar of my dog and began running away with my dog. Essentially, this woman who I was originally worried was being uh, you know, accosted by an animal for whom I held responsibility was now stealing my dog. I was seeing Spot run, but I was seeing Spot run away, initially resisting this woman who seemed to be in a much bigger hurry than my dog was. And maybe by this point, Spot had decided that this was a terrible decision and Spot needed to come back home after all. But she was actually a much more capable runner than I was, even dragging a dog along with her and eventually persuading my dog that it was in her best interest to to follow along. And she was getting away. And the more I chased, the further away that she got. And, and in the logic of the dream, I became panicked and convinced that at this point I was going to lose my animal. And I didn't want that to happen. And at this point in the dream, for whatever reason, I realized that I was armed with a handgun. And... I have also, in the narrative of the dream, become completely convinced that this is it. My only shot at getting my dog back is to act and to act now. Now, I don't know whether other people dream the way I dream. I've called myself in the past a surrealist, or at the very least, a neo-surrealist, and I feel that that's very true. So there's probably a lot of people who don't remember their dreams at all, or if they do, they remember them in a somewhat more narrative form, or at least in vignettes. But mine tend to be a little bit more like... Steven Soderbergh movie or uh, Luis Manuel's surrealist film, time kind of comes and goes and things fade in and out. And all of a sudden I was in in a different possible world within the dream. Same scenario. A woman is stealing my dog and I'm trying to stop her. But in this case, I've stopped everything, frozen time, if you will, and brought in a local sheriff of some sort, a police officer. And I'm filling out the police report, but I'm doing so while I'm standing in the same place. Uh, So the woman is off at a distance too far for me to get to. And I'm explaining to the police officer her description. I can describe her perfectly because even though she's very far away, I can certainly see the color of her pants are red and that she's wearing a white blouse and uh, the color of the leash is blue and that my dog is, of course, black. I can see all this and I'm describing it to the police officer. And even though the police officer, like me, is not frozen in time, he could easily walk right over, pick up my dog, undo the leash and bring my dog back to me tells me that there's really nothing he can do and that the odds of me getting my dog back by filling out a police report are pretty slim. The only hope I might have is if she was a show dog of some sort and maybe she could be caught in the attempted sale of illegal stolen goods. But if she truly just wanted this dog for her own and took it home with her and I'd never seen her before, odds were good I was never going to see my dog again. Now, I won't lie. I would get emotional at the thought of suddenly being told, you're never going to see your dog again. And in the dream, that emotion was magnified, as often would be in dreams. So then, 
the police officer disappeared as a, a possible world that wasn't going to play out to my advantage. And I'm back there standing with this woman close enough for me to shoot her and a gun in my hand, but far enough away that maybe it wouldn't be a done deal. I mean, she was nowhere near as close to the barrel of my gun as I was in the true story that I told at Inappropriate Conversations 113. But I realized that maybe I was a good enough shot. And this is odd for me. I don't consider myself to be an expert shot at all. But in the narrative narrative of the dream, I've got this gun and I'm clearly very capable with it and very confident. And I tell myself that maybe the best way I can get my dog back is just to clip her, you know, to fire a shot off toward her and either, you know, whiz closely by her or maybe just, you know, graze her hip or maybe get her in the leg, but not enough of the leg that I needed to worry about there being any risk of her bleeding through or anything like that, but to harm her enough to stop her and sort of turn the tables on her that, in this case, if the police the police may not come to help me get my dog back, but they would certainly come if there was a shooting. And if I could prove to 12 of my peers that the shooting was justified, that it was the only chance I had of getting my dog back, that maybe it would be okay. Maybe this would be a situation where shooting, especially if I was being careful and not shooting to kill, would really work. So, in one possibility of the dream, which now suddenly shattered like glass and broke into several possible worlds all at once. In one case, it happens exactly the way I thought it might in my head, and I I shoot her, it it hits her in the leg, it doesn't do great damage, but she falls down, very disoriented, very frightened, my dog is free from the leash, and now me and my dog can reunite in a slow-motion running scene where all I've got to do is give her her leash back and call 911 and make sure she's got the necessary medical treatment, and this could all end happily ever after. But that particular world didn't stay in orbit for very long. I was suddenly surrounded by a lot of other possibilities. What if I missed her completely and killed my dog instead? What if I shot somebody who, even though I had very good line of sight toward her and my aim was good and I was as as talented a marksman as I thought I was, I may not have been prepared for somebody to step into the line of that fire. And instead of grazing and injuring this woman in the least egregious way possible, I gunned down and murdered a kid, totally by mistake. There were several other scenarios like this all playing out, and all of them dealing with that sense that you get when you cannot immediately stop yourself, grab the bullet, and put it back in the chamber. That once you pull the trigger... It's too late. And your intentions are nice. And your intentions are interesting. But they're not that meaningful if you kill the woman by mistake. Because you probably aren't going to be that successful making an argument that you only meant to injure her. And that even if you succeed in only injuring her slightly. And that there's no permanent damage done. And that you had justifiable reasons in your head for doing so. There's a lot of state laws in the United States, depending on the jurisdiction of the U.S., There's a lot of states where you can still get in a great deal of trouble for that. It's not a wise decision. It's not responsible gun usage. And especially when you consider the other possibilities of, well, missing everything and uh, causing the woman to run away even faster or killing her by mistake or hitting your dog or hitting an innocent bystander. All the things that can go wrong where now that conversation with the uh, police officer from the sheriff's department is going to end up with you in handcuffs instead. And it raises the question of whether or not the usage of a gun is going to make anything better. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't situations where 
being a gun owner makes a heck of a lot of sense. If uh, your sport of choice is hunting, being a gun owner makes a lot of sense. But there's a fair amount of rules and regulations surrounding when and where you can use that gun. And I don't believe, I haven't held my ear to the ground and paid that much attention, but I don't believe that there's a lot of people in America today who feel like restricting deer hunting to a certain point in the calendar is some sort of an egregious violation of their rights as a citizen. There are many things when it comes to the usage of guns where we control that, and there are consequences to the usage of guns inappropriately. And certainly what happened on college campus and what's happened on many school campuses over the years could easily be described as an inappropriate use of guns. And what I guess I share with my more liberal friends is a perspective that if your first thought upon hearing that 10 people were killed on a campus and several others were injured in a spree that was designed to to end with even more carnage and probably end with suicide, if your biggest problem there, if your first thought there is somebody's going to use this as a as a trick to take my guns away from me, then you're kind of a bad human being and you need to rethink your priorities. Now, I don't say you're a bad human being because I'm opposed to gun ownership. I'm a radical moderate. I'm capable of seeing things both ways. And even though I would say that it's extremely unlikely that there would be any truth to the dream scenario, first that a random stranger who was uh, who my dog approached angrily barking is likely to steal the dog. No. <laughs> but it's also very unlikely that I would have a gun and even you know consider anywhere in my top five or ten options, using it in that situation to try to stop somebody from running off with my animal. No, it's not that. The dream took another twist, you see. Because remember when I first saw the woman, she had a dog, and I thought my dog was just taking off to greet this other dog. And even if there was going to be a lot of barking and stuff, that was more likely than not just going to be the way animals kind of treat each other on that initial sort of meeting, that there's a certain amount of built-in aggression when two dogs who don't know each other meet. The other version, the other possible world that I didn't mention earlier, was the one where this woman hadn't taken my dog at all. You see, there was another moment when I was in the chase, where I remembered that this woman looked like she was as much in fear as anything else. And this was before I'd pulled out the gun. I was just running after her, trying to get her to stop and yelling, spot, spot, and screaming at her to give me my dog back, give me my dog back. And I I was a little bit hysterical, a little bit out of control, so much so that some innocent bystanders were shooting video. But instead of doing what I wanted and stopping this woman and shooting video of her so I could show the, you know, the suspect to the police with video footage, they were shooting video of me. I seemed to be the focus of everyone's attention, and it, it dawned on me that maybe if I did actually you know, catch up to the woman and intervene and try to take my dog back, that she might be able to make an argument that this was not my dog at all. It was actually her dog, and I was some kind of crazed maniac trying to steal her dog from her, and that probably most innocent onlookers, knowing none of the rest of the story, would side with her. That being more under control, being in a self-control, maybe even being a little fearful, she could probably make a logical argument that I wasn't, I wasn't actually, I was out of control. I was the one who was the perpetrator and she was the one who was the victim. And when that thought in the dream occurred, when I sort of got outside my body and had a little bit of a third person objective view of what was happening in the dream scenario, what I realized was it was just as possible that my first glimpse of her was correct. And that maybe she had her own little black dog 
that she was walking. And I looked behind me to see that my dog, a little bit confused and maybe a little scared because of all the yelling I was doing, was quietly following a few steps behind. Wherever I went, Spot was going to go too. If I had at that moment had the wisdom to stop in my tracks and turn around and walk home, Spot would have followed me right back through the front door. And there wouldn't have been any other issues, except a bizarre disturbance in the neighborhood with me chasing after somebody who I thought had stolen my dog. It takes a much more tragic turn, though, here. If, in the scenario where she was actually walking a different black dog, and it was at enough of a distance that I really couldn't tell, and I couldn't really explain why I jumped to the conclusion that she'd stolen mine just because I didn't see Spot at that moment. What if I'd pulled out the gun then and clipped her to slow her down, to stop her, so that I could intervene and get my dog back, only to get there and find out that I'd, I'd fired a weapon at somebody and injured her, even ever so slightly, to retrieve a dog that never belonged to me in the first place? The problems would get even worse in that situation. And this is why I don't like the argument that if only everybody was armed, we'd be so much better off. If a person who's intent on creating a lot of mayhem walks into the midnight showing of a, of a new movie armed to the hilt and starts shooting people, would everyone in that movie theater actually be better off if four or five or six or seven more people pulled out weapons and opened fire? Maybe we get a little bit lucky. And in the darkness and confusion of the situation, somebody accidentally hits the actual gunman. Maybe it's not accidental. Maybe somebody out there actually has much better control in that kind of stressful situation than I did in real life and takes care of business and guns down the guy. But would there be that much more collateral damage? In this case, more people injured not by the person who is actually committing the capital offense, if you call it that, but other people who would then have to explain why they're innocent for having killed innocent people by mistake by trying to exercise the National Rifle Association's vision of the wild, wild west being the solution to the violent crime problem that has certainly been on the rise in this country since, well, maybe since about the point in time where assault weapons became more acceptable in private ownership than they were maybe in the first 20 or 30 years of my life. It's an interesting question. You see, I'm going to defend the right of Americans to own guns. It's a radical, moderate worldview. I'm going to defend a woman who feels like she needs to have a weapon in her home because she lives alone and she's concerned about her neighborhood. I'm going to defend the hunter. I'm even going to defend the person who feels like he's capable of managing and handling himself in a, in a military situation with military-grade weaponry. I'm just going to ask one little thing, one little tiny thing. Within the confines of the Second Amendment, in fact, representing the idea of the Second Amendment fully and completely, I just think that our well-regulated militia ought to be, well, well-regulated. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him, that one day his children and his children's children would look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues and their tattoos. Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. 
So if the idea in the minds of some folks is that it's a good idea for average citizens to have the same kind of weapons that, say, the Russian military in the 1980s and 90s would have had, and that they want to do so because it's their Second Amendment right to bear arms, and they perhaps correctly note that a lot of the reason that the American Revolution was initially won back in the 1700s was because almost all of the farmers and tradespeople had weapons and were willing to use them to repel the British in that Revolutionary War. But the difference is, if you want to own the kind of weaponry that is being used in crimes like this and in you know other sort of situations, it probably makes a lot of sense for you to have a far more robust registration process than we do today. How can you actually be part of a U.S. militia? How can you actually be somebody who can play a role in helping the United States repel a Red Dawn scenario, making intentional reference to what I think is a terrible 1980s movie, if we don't, if we don't know who you are? If we have no idea who you are and what weapons you have, how could we possibly deputize you, for want of a better word, in the military service at our nation's moment of greatest need, where from a military perspective, our only hope is to tap into the arsenal held by common citizens scattered either all over the country or in really potentially inconvenient places like Montana and Wyoming. I mean, it'd be nice if, if you were actually setting up a well-regulated militia at a state-by-state level. And it wasn't just parts of Arkansas, Kansas, and Oklahoma. And Texas, Texas is going to be well-defended. But the notion of a well-regulated militia, just the term well-regulated, calls to me the idea that maybe the kinds of uh, information we gather, the reference check notion, isn't only not an offensive affront to the freedom of Second Amendment guarantees of the right to bear arms, but an essential step in the right to bear those arms in the sense that First off, we need to make sure that the people who are capable of using those weapons are the ones who have them, and that we have an understanding of what their arsenal is in case we need them. Again, think of your uh, your Red Dawn situation where the U.S. military is somehow unable to repel an invasion of a certain sort, and common citizens actually have to be the frontline militia to, quote-unquote, save the day. It's important that that registration not only weed out the bad eggs, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute, but make sure that we really have a good understanding of who the good eggs are. On the website for Facebook at Inappropriate Conversations page, I've put a couple of stories here lately just kind of dealing with some of the different points of view around this notion of what do we do about the role that guns play, and it's not the only thing that's a factor when you're dealing with these mass shootings, but the role that guns play in them. And one of them had a uh, kind of a tick mark tally of all the you know, people who've been murdered in, say, the last hundred years or well, maybe even just the last decade in this sort of mass gun violence. And the other side had a ledger of the number of times that somebody had, from the U.S. government, had taken the guns away from an, a law-abiding, patriotic citizen ready to don the legacy of the U.S. American Revolution and pick up his weapon to defend our nation against an attack from an outside force or a coup d'etat from within. And that side had no ticks on it whatsoever. It's irrational, in other words, to suggest every time that there's a shooting like this that has probably been staged by Barack Obama as a justification to come and steal all of our guns from us and put us under the shackles of tyrannical rule. 
if Obama had the intention of illegally confiscating the weapons of any American, much less every American, then he is more incompetent than anybody has ever described before. He has failed more completely than you can possibly fail. No, I don't think there's any justification for the notion that the laws being proposed to try to manage guns better is the equivalent of, quote-unquote, taking away our guns. And unfortunately, it's fueled by the rhetoric that's used by the political left. They use the kind of terminology that inflames the political right, and we know why that happens. That happens for the same reason that the political right spends a lot of time making inflammatory statements about abortion and other things. It raises money. So if you make an inflammatory claim from the left and the right overreacts to it, as they almost always do, then you can point to the overreaction and and turn to your base and have people give political donations to help put your elected hopefuls into office. And it all comes down to a fundraising thing. But if we ignore those polar extremes and pull this into a conversation of, if not moderates, perhaps at least radical moderates, the group that I would like to align myself with, perhaps there's other strategies. But there's a couple of problems here. There isn't much of a voice coming from anything other than the centrist middle. Most of the voice you hear coming from the center of the country isn't particularly radical. It's as if, like me, a lot of these folks who see the problem don't really see the solution, and have not yet articulated a good way of managing it. I'm going to confess that outside of this dream, presenting me with different scenarios where I have a hard time finding a reason why the use of a gun was ever going to help me get my dog back, that even while in the context and the logic of the dream and in the mindset that me as a character in that dream had, it seemed like a good idea at the time, it actually wasn't. And there was no scenario, even the perfectly executed one where she actually had stolen my dog, and I actually did only clip her a little bit, I'm still going to end up in trouble with the law. I might get my dog back, but I'm still going to end up with some significant legal issues that I need to deal with. Because just because you have the right to own a gun doesn't mean that you have the unfettered right to use it. Like the hunter. There are times when it's okay to shoot a deer. There's times when it's not. And just like we're okay with the hunter, we need to be okay with a little bit more of a regulatory voice, not necessarily around who is and who isn't allowed to get a gun, but what steps do we take in making sure that the right people have them and that they're trained and that the wrong people don't? The biggest complaint you hear is that if, well, let me, let me look at it this way. I'm going to cite an article that I might actually share as a link to the show notes. Tim Crutcher is the author, and it's from a blog from him called timcrutcher.wordpress.com. His article, Redrawing the Responsibility Line, a Radical Moderate Take on Gun Control, was posted June 26, 2015. That timing is not coincidental. It lines up with the Charleston shooting and the Dylan Roof case from earlier this year. But I want to make a couple of notations from his take, and obviously the the name Radical Moderate is what really attracted me to it. And he started off with a couple of tautologies that I think we really kind of need to deal with. One is that if you make guns illegal, then only criminals will have guns. Okay. I say that's tautological because by making them illegal, you've criminalized everything, and therefore it's obvious that if all gun ownership was illegal, then all gun owners would be criminals. 
But he also winds that up again with kind of a different tautology. He calls it, quoting him, the inescapable fact of the matter is that there is always a gun involved in a gun-related crime. So just like it's a little bit silly for someone to say that there's always a gun involved in a gun-related crime, it's equally silly to say that if you make guns illegal, then only the criminals will have guns. Among the solutions that are discussed in this article, he talks a little bit about one of the problems being that maybe we it's not that we don't that we shouldn't have gun control ideas in place. We shouldn't have waiting periods and registrations and other things. Uh, the notion that we shouldn't have them because they don't work is silly. The reason they don't work is because there's loopholes where we don't have them functioning. Perhaps the answer would be tightening those loopholes, but tightening them in a way that respects the notion, the constitutional notion, of a well-regulated militia, as opposed to tightening them in a way that just makes it difficult for everyone, what I would call the good guys and the bad guys, to get weapons. Again, I don't have an issue with the good guys get weapons, because I think the quote-unquote good guys are going to make the same decision that I made in the aftermath of the dream, that there are very few situations where going to your gun safe, unlocking it, getting the gun out, going to the separate drawer somewhere else, getting your bullets, loading the bullets into the gun, there's very few situations where that scenario is actually going to work. In a home invasion, there's a very good chance that's not going to work. To keep your gun safe and make sure that your 12-year-old boy doesn't shoot an 8-year-old girl in the trailer park, you've got to take those kinds of safety measures. But in taking those kinds of safety measures, it probably makes it relatively unlikely that I would have been in this dream. I wouldn't have been able to go into my home, find my handgun, find the bullets, load the bullets into the handgun, go back out, and have even the first clue as to where the woman might actually be. How in the world would I find her to get my dog back if I had to go through that process, which would take at least a couple of minutes, maybe as many as five? The math just doesn't work. Here are the suggestions, the positive suggestions, that came from this article by Crutcher. He basically asks this. What would happen if a group like the NRA, National Rifle Association, started saying things like this? We believe in responsible gun ownership, and part of that responsibility is making sure that guns are not available to people who are likely to misuse them. After all, events like the Charleston situation are the worst nightmare for groups like the NRA so it would even be in their political best interest to prevent them, completely apart from the human tragedy that it involves. What would happen if at the next NRA convention a large number of people put their heads together to address the question of how they could protect responsible gun ownership by reducing irresponsible gun ownership? Obviously, when there is money to be made, people aren't always interested in responsibility. But the simple fact is that when people don't figure out ways to balance individual freedom and communal responsibility on their own, governments are always happy to step in and make those decisions for them. Tim Crutcher, from his blog. A couple of things I'd like to just say here, and saying that this is one of the better examples of a moderate take that I've seen, and, and the fact that it's one of the few is the problem. But there's a couple problems. First off, I agree with him that this would be a solution that is much better solved by those people who have the most skin in the game in terms of being gun owners, wanting to continue to be gun owners, and wanting to keep the government out of it. And what Crutcher is suggesting here isn't any more outrageous than a voluntary movie rating system that was initially proposed to stop Congress from stepping in and actively censoring films and creating what would have been, at the time, a uh, 
Supreme Court level of First Amendment controversy. But I disagree with his premise. His notion, and while it's politically true, isn't actually true that the NRA has a major problem, that it's in the NRA's best interest to prevent shootings like ones in Oregon and Connecticut and South Carolina. I could go on and on and on. The plain, cold, hard truth of the matter is that people who are engaged in the buying and selling of weapons, not just gun shops, but gun manufacturers, and the NRA as well, profit greatly every time one of these types of large-scale mass shootings occur. It is money in the bank. You can hear the cash registers ring. I saw an interview this weekend with a local gun owner, a gun shop actually, in this in this Oregon community where all of these killings had just occurred not even one week before, saying that they were stocking up, increasing their inventory, that there's nothing quite like a mass shooting to generate a lot of interest in gun ownership and a heck of a lot of sales. And that on one level, thinking of just from a purely retail perspective, it would almost be a mistake for a gun shop to not be in stock on guns when the demand for guns spikes. But why does the demand for guns spike so much? I could see a little bit, a little bit of paranoia over if somebody's going to come at me with a gun, I want to be armed myself. But a lot of this spike is not caused in spite of the NRA acting in its own political best interest to address these issues so irresponsible gun usage stops. No, a lot of this spike in demand is fanned intentionally through a marketing campaign led by the NRA and other politically conservative groups. It is if this is their chance to cash in because they're the ones saying, you better buy these guns now before Obama takes them away. Well, Obama has failed completely to take people's guns away. <laughs> he may not have failed to talk about it, but he has failed completely to do it. And I have very little doubt that he won't succeed in doing it, even if he tried, which again, he's given no indication of trying. Does it make sense that we might want to have a little bit of a better filtration process to make sure that some of these particular kinds of people don't get guns? It absolutely does. When I worked in newspapers, there was a case in the uh, small community that I lived in where a man had found out that his wife was having an affair behind his back. And the day he found out, he went to a local sort of department store, a sporting goods store, bought a gun from the same store, bought bullets. This was before the... Uh, before a lot of the Brady Bill sort of stuff had kicked in. The Brady Bill did exist, but it didn't have very many teeth back then. Took the now freshly purchased gun with the freshly purchased ammo, killed his wife, went after her lover, may have killed him too, for all I know. He didn't have an opportunity to think through his C-spot run problem from all the same perspectives that I did. In the dream, I had a chance to say, hey, what... What if I just stop, let the woman get away, and call the sheriff? Will that give me a good result? Yeah, it didn't. What if I shoot her? Will that give me a good result? No, it didn't. What are all the bad things that might happen? Well, I might shoot somebody else by mistake. I might kill her instead of wounding her. I might actually kill my dog. What if it's not my dog? What if my dog's standing behind me and I'm shooting this woman for no reason? He didn't have a chance to think all these things through. Because in the moment of what we call passion, and that moment of jealous rage and anger, he was able to go probably fuming with metaphorical smoke coming out of his ears, buy a gun, buy the ammo, load the gun, and go in and kill his wife pretty much within a one hour or 90 minute span of time. 
please tell me that there's an argument that waiting periods are somehow wrong or evil or unconstitutional or serve no discernible benefit. It's not that it's going to stop a carefully planned and premeditated shooting like the ones that are happening. It's not that I'm saying that just uh, better screening is going to solve all this. I don't think you have to solve everything to make things better. If you can get that couple into marriage counseling or through an amical divorce instead of a murder that left her and some other man dead and this guy facing either life in prison or an execution, it's probably worth the wait to get there. In other words, no one's saying that we're planning to take the rights of gun owners away or even go and collect their guns. We're just saying that there are certain inconveniences that might be worth it if you can save the lives of an elementary school with rooms full of children. If you can make that kind of a difference, how is it fundamentally more inconvenient than having specific seasons set up for the sport of hunting and which animals can be shot using which weapons at which times of year? I have a less moderate view to share, but to do so, I think I want to wrestle a little bit with the different drummer. And I will say, going into that segment, that this has been one of the more challenging things for me. I can't remember another time where I've had this much trouble picking a different drummer for a topic. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of the greatest show in the galaxy, Simpson Syndicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We obey no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. As the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. For one thing, I had planned a fun and games kind of October series for inappropriate conversations, and I still intend to do that. I said it was going to be a Halloween-themed month with lots of tricks and treats, and that's going to happen. Sound collages is what I'm calling them, and and I'm going to depart from the normal format of the show to make that happen, although there will still be different drummers. But in this case, I didn't pre-plan this episode. This came to me with the dream. It's called Seeing Spot Run because that was kind of what I thought when I woke up that morning, feeling really bad about the fact that I'd spent a good chunk of the night um, fearing that I'd lost my dog or fearing that I'd killed somebody or you know killed my dog. It was a terrible night's sleep. And I woke up and thought, yeah, do you want to share this? But if I share it, who's my different drummer? So I looked in the queue of people that I was planning to one day throw out there as a different drummer. And the best name I had was Lee Marvin. I could refer to Lee Marvin right now as a different drummer and talk about responsible gun usage, actual good ways to use guns in a military way to make a meaningful difference, to be genuinely heroic, to have that counterpoint going. But I decided it wasn't a good fit because I actually do want to spend this entire episode complaining. 
I don't know that I want to be fully balanced and I want a 360-degree perspective because I don't think you can have a 360-degree perspective on whether there's any right to be found in the wrong of going into a college campus and gunning down 10 people and injuring several more. There's no two sides to this. Rachel Held Evans has a quote that I've seen, which unfortunately she gets to truck out far too often because this keeps happening. But she basically says, I don't think I can make a passionate argument about gun control right now in the wake of this particular college shooting. Because when 20-some-odd elementary school kids get gunned down and we won't do anything to try to address ways of tightening up our system and controlling things a little bit better, if you're not going to act with dozens of school kids, you're not going to act any other time. We're fooling ourselves. So I decided, yeah, maybe I go in another direction. And a friend of mine put a post up that I thought was very, very profound. She suggested that we're not doing enough talking about the fact that almost every single one of these you know, mass shooting cases, the criminal is a man. But then I thought, you know, that, that's almost true. I mean, I'm not saying she's wrong. The, it's overwhelmingly likely that that's the case. But I thought, what about Bob Geldof? lead singer of the Boomtown Rats, maybe my favorite Irish band, one of them anyway, certainly my favorite band from the era that we would call New Wave that came out of Ireland. And uh, of course, you know, humanitarian, Live Aid is among his credits. He also wrote a song called I Don't Like Mondays for the band, the Boomtown Rats, on their third international album that talked a little bit about a school shooting from 1979 in San Diego, California. And the shooter in this case was a woman. She wanted to shoot the whole day down because, well, she didn't like Mondays. But that didn't work either. I think anybody who's followed the career of Bob Geldof end-to-end knows that there's parts of his story that are a little bit problematic and maybe not ideal for the topic. And then I saw a post online that I want to share because that's the post that's going to lead me to the different drummer that I'm going to cite today. He's somebody that I'd never heard of before. In fact, there was a Twitter exchange this week, just yesterday, I believe, where the question came about, this post is so awesome, who's the author? Because a lot of times you see stuff like this and it's not attributed at all. Uh, I wish people would include attribution on stuff like this so we would know whom to thank. This is brilliant, was one person's comment on Twitter. And another person chimed in and said, I think I know where this came from. And he shared an article that was published uh, in an online publication called The Examiner. Social Issues Examiner is the the subtitle for William Hamby, who wrote an article in 2013, What if gun laws were like abortion laws? I don't know much about William Hamby, but I will tell you that I'm pretty comfortable inside the narrow focus of this topic, naming him the different drummer for Seeing Spot Run. I'm not going to directly cite Hamby's article from February 9th, 2013. It can be found at www.examiner.com slash articles slash what if gun laws were like abortion laws. Instead, I'm going to go with the truncated version that is circulated around social media because I think it gets to the heart of the hypocrisy that is so true when we look at this from the perspective of the religious right. 
So I'm setting aside for now the pursuit of radical moderate ideas and ways that we can perhaps corral the, the resources and effort of the NRA to say, you know what, no group can do better at managing and controlling the line between responsible versus irresponsible gun usage than the people who have the most skin in the game and the most passion about the proper usage of guns. The NRA existed originally as an organization to teach people how to use guns safely and well. They now would probably view that as an affront to their mission if I called them out for failing to do it and for failing to you know, help and play their role in taking the guns that don't belong in the hands of certain people out of their hands. Second Amendment is not a right that guarantees that everybody, unfettered, should be bearing arms. This is the other reason why I don't understand the notion of people walking up and down streets with assault rifles around, you know, over their arm, using it as a means of intimidating people as they as they shop in malls or go to restaurants. Ronald Reagan called this out. I'm squarely in Ronald Reagan's camp when I say, that's not a sporting weapon. That's not even a self-defense weapon. There's no reason why a common American citizen should be ex- exercising an open carry right on some sort of a you know a semi-automatic or automatic assault rifle. It just doesn't make sense. Ronald Reagan said it. I believe it. That settles it. Perhaps. But... I also, you know, there tends to be a great deal of racism there as well. I think if you go to the certain parts of the American South where this sort of law is the most common and the most commonly exercised by its individual citizens, I think you're going to get a very different response if the same number of black citizens came in armed with those particular kinds of weapons, with or without a beret on their head, as you will the white citizens who are um, kind of, I don't know, playing some sort of a quasi-Southern Hells Angels role. I'm not really sure what it all means. But no, so I'm ready to say that's the best I can do from a moderate perspective. It's time to look at this from the perspective of where perhaps the right wing of American politics gets it wrong. And this post, this originally unattributed post, I think gets it right. I'm just going to read it verbatim. It's not long, but it is straight to the point. How about we treat every young man who wants to buy a gun like every woman who wants to get an abortion. Mandatory 48-hour waiting period. Parental permission. A note from his doctor proving he understands what he's about to do. A, a video that he has to watch about the effects of gun violence. An ultrasound wand up his ass just because. Let's close down all but one gun shop in every state and make him travel hundreds of miles, take time off work, and stay overnight in a strange town to get a gun. Make him walk through a gauntlet of people holding photos of loved ones who are shot to death, people who call him a murderer and beg him not to buy a gun. It makes more sense to do this with young men and guns than with women in health care, right? I mean, no woman getting an abortion has killed a room full of people in seconds, right? I can't guarantee that these ideas can be line for line drawn and credited to William Hamby, He was perhaps inspired by others. His article perhaps represents a lot of potentially unattributable ideas just from his interacting with people and and having his own uh, blog on the side as well, which I'll get to in just a minute. But he has, at least for the current moment on the internet, the original version or the earliest version of this particular citation. And the article that I'll, again, try to share when I make this post goes into even more detail, more detail than I want to share today. But for a different drummer segment, I feel like I need to at least answer the question, who is William Hamby? And that's not easy to do, because prior to yesterday, 
I had no idea who he was. That's not a criticism. He could easily say the same thing about me today, I'm sure. At examiner.com, here is the bio for Hamby. He is a longtime blogger and secular activist. He maintains a blog at livinglifewithoutanet.wordpress.com, where he examines religion, science, and culture from a secular perspective. A former evangelical Christian, William has experienced both sides of religious life in America and is now an advocate for human rights and separation of church and state. In this respect, Hamby sounds a lot like me, with one key exception. From his own uh, Life Without a Net blog, the About page, says this, the last paragraph, Living life without a net means not accepting easy answers from religion or any other kind of faith-based mythology. It means looking at the universe for what it is, not some magical invisible overlord says it ought to be. It means tossing off the shackles of religion and examining ourselves for what we are and what we'd like to become. You see, I guess if you drew a line in terms of where you are in your personal faith and said, where's Hamby and where's Greg? William's on the other side of that line. But I like to acknowledge the fact that just because there's a border, this isn't like a pass-fail test to me. I reject the notion that science versus religion is an actual comparison that matters. To me, that's a, that's a fallacious either-or. You can have a both-and approach. So I don't reject my faith as being based on some sort of mythology. I don't believe in a magical, invisible overlord. I believe it's far more complicated than that. And if that puts me on a uh, believer side of a border and hand me on an unbeliever side of a border, it's still sometimes very helpful to measure the distance between those points. In other words, if there weren't a border, is his worldview closer to my worldview than my worldview is to anybody associated with you know, the Franklin Graham-type people? And I think it's probably absolutely true that, well, both of us are committed to the separation of church and state. Clearly, both of us are committed to asking the next question on a variety of topics. As I look today at the time of this recording, he's got uh, blog entries like, this is why America's failing welfare system is a nightmare for libertarians. Or what does science say about porn? Or this is why it's wrong to tell women to cover their bodies. He's dealing with the same kind of topics that I deal with on inappropriate conversations. And I agree with the people who suggest that he has spoken most clearly on this issue, even though no one knew for the most part that the ideas should be attributed to him. So there are other ideas out there that are worth exploring. And I guess my beef here is that in the sort of polar view that you hear expressed, some folks say that the only way we're ever going to solve this problem is if we eliminate guns. It's a naive worldview. It won't work. It's frankly un-American in the sense that there wouldn't even be a United States of America today if it weren't for common citizens owning guns and being willing to prepare and prepared to use them at a moment of American, of desperate American military need, um, the colonial notion. But on the other hand, it's just as irresponsible to say that any move to try to curtail the irresponsible usage of guns 
is the same thing as guns being confiscated. The same things as Obama going door to door and stealing weapons from people's homes. No, I think the NRA should hold as much or perhaps more responsibility than any other group I can name in making sure that guns are used properly. It ties in with the original mission of the organization and the current leadership of that organization are failing as spectacularly as an organization possibly can by not only not doing that duty, not only presuming that it's inappropriate that they be asked to do that duty, but taking as many lobbying and political maneuvers as they possibly can to make sure that no one else does it either. In that dream, I would have loved it if the sheriff character had said, I can get your dog back, this is going to be okay. But I also would have loved it if the sheriff character had showed up a little later and said, firing that weapon is not going to solve anything. It is possible that you're wrong about this and that she doesn't even have your dog right now. But what if she did? At what point would I be justified in taking the chance of taking her life, my dog's life, or somebody else's life, just because the use of a gun seemed like the fastest way to solve the problem. That is an irresponsible and improper use of the weapon. And it's not just the responsibility of law enforcement. It's not just the responsibility of political leaders. It's also the responsibility of good gun owners to make sure that those of us who in our dreams behave foolishly get the corrective information that we need to be more responsible than we are today. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. As I mentioned during the show, I am on Twitter there. I'm at IC underscore Greg. Inappropriate Conversations can be heard through the website at inappropriateconversations.org. Also on iTunes and Stitcher Smart Radio. Thanks for listening. part of the pride 48 network find more shows over at pride 48.com